Hello and welcome back to the book club commune with me your host Ivy Poesi. Today we're going to be doing two chapters because they were just really short. We're going to be reading chapter four which is called The Export of Capital and also chapter five The Division of the World Among Capitalist Combines. Um, yeah, Chapter four was super short uh, so I'm just doing chapter four and chapter five at the same time. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. Chapter 4. The Export of Capital Under the old type of capitalism, when free competition prevailed, the export of goods was the most typical feature. Under modern capitalism, when monopolies prevail, the export of capital has become the typical feature. Capitalism is commodity production at the highest stage of development, and labor power itself becomes a commodity. The growth of an internal exchange, and particularly of international exchange is a special feature of capitalism. The uneven and even spasmodic character of the development of individual enterprises, of individual branches of industry, and individual countries is inevitable under the capitalist system. England becomes a cap- became a capitalist country before any other, and in the middle of the 19th century, having adopted free trade, claimed to be the workshop of the world, a great purveyor of manufactured goods to all other countries which, in exchange, were to keep her supplied with raw materials. In the last quarter of the 19th century, this monopoly was already undermined. Other countries, protecting themselves by tariff walls, had developed into independent capitalist countries. On the threshold of the 20th century, we see a new type of monopoly coming into existence. First, there are monopolist capitalist combines in all advanced capitalist countries. Secondly, a few rich countries in which the accumulation of capital reaches gigantic proportions, occupy a monopolist position. An enormous superfluity of capital has accumulated in the advanced countries. It goes without saying that if capitalism could develop agriculture, which today lags far behind industry everywhere, if it could raise the standard of living of the masses, who are everywhere still poverty-stricken and underfed, in spite of the amazing advance in technological knowledge, there could be no talk of a superfluity of capital. This argument, the petty bourgeois critics of capitalism, advance on every occasion. But if capitalism did these things, it would not be capitalism, for uneven development and wretched conditions of the masses are the fundamental and inevitable conditions and premises of the mode of production. As long as capitalism remains as it is, remains what it is, surplus capital will never be utilized for the purpose of raising the standard of living of the masses in a given country. This would mean decline in profits for the capitalists. It will be used for the purpose of increasing these profits by exporting the capital abroad to make the backward countries, to, to the backward countries. In these backward countries, profits are, are usually are high for capital, is scarce. The price of land relatively low, wages are low, raw materials are cheap. The possibility of exporting capital is created by the entry of numerous backwards countries into international capitalist intercourse. Main railways have either been built or are being built there. The elementary conditions for industrial development have been created, etc. The necessity of exporting capital arises from the fact that in a few countries, capitalism has become overripe, and, owing to the backward state of agriculture and the impoverished state of the masses, capital cannot find profitable investment. Here are approximate figures showing the amount of capital invested abroad in the three principal countries. 
uh, in Great Britain from 1862 to 1914. It went from 3.6 to 75 to 100. In France from 1872 to 1914, it went from 10 to 60 uh, in billions of francs. And in Germany um, from 1902 to 1914, it went from 12 billion to 44 billion. The table shows that the export of capital reached formidable dimensions only in the beginning of the 20th century. Before the war, the capital invested abroad by the three principal countries amounted to between 175 and 200 billion francs. At the modest rate of 5%, this sum brought in from 8 to 10 billion a year. This provided a solid basis for imperialist depression and the exploitation of the most of the countries and nations of the world a solid basis for the capitalist parasitism of a handful of wealthy states. How is this capital invested abroad, distributed among the various countries? Where does it go? Only an approximate answer can be given to this question, but sufficient to throw light on certain general relations and ties to of modern imperialism. Uh, so in billion of francs, Great Britain uh, invested four billion in Europe, 37 billion in America, 29 billion in Asia, Africa, and Australia for a total of 70. France invested 23 billion in Europe, 4 in America, and 8 in Asia, Africa, and Australia for a total of 35 billion. Germany invested 18 billion in Europe, 10 billion in America, and 7 in Asia, Africa, and Australia for another total of 35 billion for a grand total of 140 billion in total. The principal spheres of investment of British capital are the British colonies, which are also very large, and also in America, for example Canada, as well as in Asia, etc. In this case, enormous exports of capital are bound up with the possession of enormous colonies, of the importance of which for imperialism we shall speak later. In regard to France, the situation is quite different. French capital exports are invested mainly in Europe, particularly in Russia, at least 10 billion francs. This is mainly loan capital in the form of government loans and not investments in industrial undertakings. Unlike British colonial imperialism, French imperialism might have been termed usury imperialism. French imperialism, yeah, in regards to Germany, we have a third type. The German colonies are inconsiderable and German capital invested abroad is divided fairly evening between Europe and America. The export of capital greatly affects and accelerates the development of capitalism in those countries to which it is exported, while therefore the export of capital may lead to, certain ex to a certain extent to arrest development in the countries exploiting cap exporting capital. It can only do so by expanding and deepening the further development of capitalism throughout the world. The countries of which export capital are nearly always able to obtain advantages the character of which throws light on the peculiarities of the epoch of finance capital and monopoly. The following passage, for instance, occurred in the Berlin Review, Die Bank, for October 1913. Quote, a comedy worth of the pen of Aristophanes is being played just now on the international money market. Numerous foreign countries, from Spain to the Balkan states, from Russia to, to the Argentine, Brazil and China are openly or secretly approaching the big money markets demanding loans, some of which are very urgent. The money market is not at the moment very bright, and the political outlook is not yet promising. 
but not a single money market dares to refuse a loan for fear that its neighbor might grant it and so secure some small reciprocal service. In these international transactions, the creditor nearly always manages to get some special advantages, an advantage on, of a commercial political out nature, a coaling station, a contract to construct a harbor, a fat concession, or an order for guns, end quote. So, finance capital has created the epoch of monopolies, and monopolies introduced everywhere monopolist methods. The utilization of connections for profitable transaction takes the place of competition on the open market. The most usual thing is to stipulate that part of the loan is that is granted shall be spent on purchases in the country of issue, particularly on orders for war materials or for ships, etc. In the course of the last two decades, 1890 to 1910, France often resorted to this method. The export of capital abroad thus becomes a means for encouraging the export of commodities. In these circumstances, transactions between particularly big firms assume a form of border, assume a form bordering on corruption, as Schiedler delicately puts it. Krupp in Germany, Schneider in France, Armstrong in England are instances of firms having close connections with powerful banks and governments who share, who share must not be forgotten when arranging a loan. France granted loans to Russia in 1905, and by the Commercial Treaty of September 16, 1905, she squeezed concessions out of her to run till 1917. She did the same thing when the Franco-Japanese Commercial Treaty was concluded on August 19, 1911. The tariff war between Austria and Serbia, which lasted with a, with a seven-month interval from 1906 to 1911, was partly caused by competition between Austria and France for supplying Serbia with more material. In, July, in January 1912, Paul de Chanel stated in the Chamber of Deputies from 1908 to 1911, French firms had supplied war materials to Serbia to the value of 45 million francs. A report from the Austro-Hungarian Council at Sao Paulo, Brazil, states, quote, The construction of the Brazilian railways are being carried out chiefly by France, Belgian, British, and German capital. In the financial operations connected with the construction of these railways, the countries involved also stipulate for orders for the necessary railway materials, end quote. Thus, finance capital almost literally, one might say, spreads its net over all countries of the world. Banks founded in the colonies or their branches play an important part in these operations. German imperialists look with, with envy on the old colonizing nations with, which in this respect are well established. In 1904, Great Britain had 50 colonial banks with 2,279 branches. In 1910, there were 72 banks with 5,449 branches. France had 20 with 136 branches. Holland, 16 with 68 branches and Germany had a mere 13 with 70 branches. The American capitalists in their turn on their, in their turn are jealous of the English and German. In South America, they complained in 1915, five German banks ha had 40 branches and five English banks had 70. During the last 25 years, Great Britain and Germany have invested in the Argentine, Brazil, and Uruguay about $4 billion, which on places under their control 46% of the total trade of these, these three countries. The capital exporting countries have divided the world among themselves in the figurative sense of the term. 
our finance capital has also led to the actual division of the world. End of chapter four. Chapter five, the division of the world among capitalist combines. Monopolist capitalist combines, cartels, syndicates, and trusts divide among themselves, first of all, the whole internal market of a country and impose their control more or less completely upon the industry of that country. But under capitalism, the home market is inevitably bound up with the foreign market. Capitalism long ago created a world market. As the export of capital increased and the foreign colonial relations, the spheres of influence of the big monopolist combines expanded, things tended naturally toward an international agreement among these combines and toward the formation of international cartels. This is a new stage of world concentration of capital and production incomparably higher than the preceding stages. Let's see how the supermonopoly develops. The electrical industry is the most typical of the modern technical advancements of capitalism and of the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. This industry has developed most in the two most advanced of the new capitalist countries, the United States and Germany. In Germany, the crisis of 1900 gave a particularly strong impetus to its concentration. During the crisis, the banks, which by this time had become fairly well merged with industry, greatly accelerated and deepened the collapse of relatively small firms and their absorption by the large ones. The banks, writes Jidels, in, in refusing a helping hand to the very companies which needed it, bring on, after a frenzied boom, the hopeless failure of the companies, which are not permanently cl closely attached to them. As a result of after 1900, concentration in Germany proceeded by leaps and bounds. Up to 1900, there had been seven or eight groups in the electrical industry. Each was formed of many companies, although altogether there are 28. And in 1908 and 1912, all these groups were united by, into two, or possibly one. The diagram below shows the process. Feltman and Gulheimer and Lameyer went into Felton and Lameyer. Union AEG became just AEG. Seismans and Haskells and Sukirk and Company became Seisman and Haskell Schuchert. Bergman stayed as Bergman and Coomer failed in 1900. Feynman and Lameyer and AEG formed into, by, into just AEG, the General Electric Company. Seisman and Haske Sukert and Bergman turned into Siemens and Haske Sukert. Um, and after that, they were in close cooperation since 1908. The famous AEG, which grew up in this way, controls 175 to 200 companies through shareholdings and a total capital of approximately 1.5 billion marks. Abroad has 34 direct representatives, of which 12 are joint stock companies, in more than 10 countries. As early as 1904, the amount of capital invested abroad by the German electrical industry was estimated at 233 million marks. Of this sum, 62 million were invested in Russia. Needless to say, the AEG is a huge combine. Its manufacturing companies alone number no less than 16, and their factories make the most varied articles from cables and insulators to motor cars and airplanes. But concentration in Europe was part of the process of concentration in America, which, followed in, which developed in the following way. Essentially is what it's saying is that you know, American electric companies establishes firms in Europe and uh, cooperate extremely closely um, with the German firms 
in which you have the General Electric Company, GE, in America, and the General Electric Company, AEG, in Germany. Thus, two great powers in the electrical industry were formed. There are no other electrical powers in the world completely independent of them, wrote Heining in his article, The Path of the Electric Trust. An idea, although far from complete of the turnover in the seas of enterprises of the two trusts, can be obtained in the following figures. The, the American Ele General Electric Company in 1907 had a turnover of 252 million marks with 28,000 employees and 35.4 million marks in profit. In 1910, it had 298 million marks in turnover, 32,000 employees, and 4.6 millions in net profit. The German AAG in 1907 had 216 million marks in turnover, 30,700 30, employees, and 14.5 million marks in net profits. In 1911, 362 million marks in turnover, 60,800 employees, and 21.7 million marks in profit. In 1907, the German Ameri and American Trust concluded an agreement by which they divided the world between themselves. Competition between them ceased. The American General Electric Company got the United States and Canada. The AEG got Germany, Austria, Russia, Holland, Denmark, Switzerland, Turkey, and the Balkans. Special agreements, naturally secret, were concluded regarding the penetration of subsidiary companies into new branches of industry, into new countries formerly not allowed. The two trusts were to exchange inventions and experiments. It is easy to understand how difficult competition has become against this, which is practically worldwide, which controls a capital of several billion marks and has branches, agencies, representative connections, etc., in every corner of the world. But the division of the world between two powerful trusts does not remove the possibility of redivision. If the relation of forces changes as a result of uneven development, war, bankruptcy, etc., the oil industry provides an instructive example of such a redivision, or rather, the struggle for redivision. The oil market, wrote Jidels in 1905, is even today divided in the main between the two great financial groups, Rockefeller Standard Oil and the controlling interests of the Russian oil fields in Baku, Rothschild and Nobel. The two groups are in close alliance, but for several years, five enemies have been threatening their monopoly. One, the exhaustion of the American wells. Two, the competition of the firm in Monashtav of Baku. Three, the Austrian wells. Four, the Romanian wells and five, the transoceanic oil fields, particularly in the Dutch colonies. The extremely rich firms, Samuel and Shell, also connected with British capital. The three last groups are connected with the great German banks, principally the Deutsche Bank. These banks independently and systematically developed the oil industry in Romania in order to have a foothold in their own. In 1907, 185 billion francs of foreign capital, or million francs of foreign capital, was invested in the Romanian oil industry, of which 74 million came from Germany. Quick side note, of the Rockefeller Standard Oil Company, that has now been split into very few companies. It was split into a hundred, in dozens of companies following the breakup of the monopoly. Um, now it's like four. ExxonMobil, which was Exxon and Mobil, and they combined again. 
Chevron, Amico, which is now owned by BP, and Pennzoil. A struggle between began which in economic literature is fittingly called the struggle for the division of the world. On one side, the Rockefeller Trust, wishing to conquer everything, formed a subsidiary company right in Holland and bought up the oil wells in the Dutch Indies in order to strike at its principal enemy, the Anglo-Dutch Shell Trust. On the other side, the Deutsche Bank and the other German banks aimed at retaining Romania for themselves and at uniting it with the Russian with Russia against Rockefeller. The latter controlled far more capital in an excellent system of oil transport and distribution. The struggle had to end, and did end in 1907, with the defeat of the Deutsche Bank, which was forced to choose between two alternatives, either to liquidate its oil business and lose millions, or to submit. It chose to submit, and concluded a very disadvantaged agreement with the American Trust. The Deutsche Bank agreed not to attempt anything which might injure American interests. Provision was made, however, for the annulment of the agreement in the event of Germany establishing a state oil monopoly. Then the great comedy for oil began. One of the German finance kings, von Gwinner, a director of the, of the Deutsche Bank, began, through his private secretary, Strauss, a campaign for a state oil monopoly. The gigantic machine of the big German bank and all its connections were set in motion. The press bubbled over with patriotic indignation against the yoke of the American trust, and on March 15, 1911, the Reichstag, by almost unanimous vote, adopted a motion asking the government to introduce a bill for the establishment of an oil monopoly. The government seized upon this popular idea and the game of the Deutsche Bank, which hoped to deceive its American partner and improve its business with a state monopoly, appeared to have been won. The German oil magnates saw a vision of wondrous profits, of which would not be less than those of the great Russian sugar refiners. But first, the great German banker, banks quarreled among themselves over the division of the spoils. The Diskontogeschelschaft exposed the covetous aims of the Deutsche Bank. Secondly, the government took fright at the prospect of a struggle with Rockefeller. It was doubtful whether Germany could could be sure of obtaining oil from other sources, the Romanian output was small. Thirdly, just at the time, the 1913 credits of billion marks were voted for Germany's war preparations. The project of oil monopoly was postponed. The Rockefeller Trust came out of the struggle, for the time being, victorious. The Berlin magazine, Die Bank, said in this connection that Germany could only fight the oil trust by establishing an electric monopoly and by converting water power into cheap electricity. But, the author added, the power monopoly will come when the producers need it. And that is to say, when the next great failure in the electrical industry is impending, and when the powerful, expensive electric stations, which are now being put up at great cost everywhere by private electric concerns, which obtain partial monopolies from towns, from the state, etc., can no longer work at a profit. Water power will then have to be used, but this cannot be converted into cheap electricity at state expense. It will have to be handed over to pri a private monopoly controlled by the state. Because of the immense compensation and damages that would have to be paid to the private industry. So it was with the nitrate monopoly. So it is with the oil monopoly. So it is with the petroleum monopoly. So it will be with the electric power monopoly. It is time to s our state socialists who, who allow themselves to be blinded by beautiful principles, understood once and for all that in Germany, monopolies have never pursued the aim, 
nor have they had the results of benefiting the consumers or of handing over to the state part of the entrepreneur's profits. They have served only to, san to sanitate at the expense of the state private industries, which were on the verge of bankruptcy. End quote. Such are the valuable admissions of which the German bourgeois economists are forced to make. We see plainly here now private monopolies and state monopolies are bound together in the age of finance capital, how both are but separate links in the imperialist struggle between the big monopolists for the division of the world. In mercantile shipping, the tremendous development of concentration has ended also in the division of the world. In Germany, two powerful companies have raised themselves first to first rank, the Hamburg America and the Nord... Deutscher... What the fuck? The Nord... Deutscher Lloyd. Each having a capital of 200 million marks in stocks and bonds and possessing 185 to 189 million marks worth of shipping tonnage. On the other side in America, on January 1st, 1903, the Morgan Trust the International Maritime Trading Company, was formed which united nine British and American steamship companies and which controlled a capital of $120 million, 480 million marks. As early as 1903, the German giants of the Ang and the Anglo-American trusts concluded an agreement and divided the world in accordance with the division of profits. The German companies undertook not to compete in the Anglo-American traffic, the ports which were carefully allotted to each. A joint committee of control were set up. This contract was concluded for 20 years, with a prudent provision for its annulment in the event of war. Extremely instructive also is the story of the creation of the International Rail Cartel. The first attempt of the British, Belgian, and German rail manufacturers to create such a cartel was made as early as 1884, at the time of the severe industrial depression. The manufacturers agreed not to compete with one another for the international markets and of the countries involved, and they divided the foreign markets in the following quotas. Germany, Great Britain, 66%. Germany, 27%. Belgium, 17%. India reserved, was reserved entirely for Great Britain. Joint war was declared against a British firm which remained outside the cartel. The cost of this economic war was met by a percentage levy on all sales. But in 1886, the cartel collapsed when two British firms retired from it. It is characteristic that the agreement could not be achieved in this period of industrial prosperity, which followed. At the beginning of 1904, the German Steel Syndicate was formed. In November 1904, the International Rail Cartel was revived, with the following quotas for foreign trade. Great Britain, 53.5%. Germany, 28.83%. Belgium, 17.67%. France came in later with 4.8%. 5.8% and 6.8% in the first, second, and third years, respectively, in excess of a 100% limit, i.e., when the total was 104%, etc. In 1905, the United States Steel Corporation entered the cartel, then Austria, then Spain. At the present time, wrote Vogelstein in 1910, the partition of the world is completed and the big consumers, primarily the state railways, since the world has been parceled out, without consideration for their interests, can now dwell like the poet in the palace of Jupiter." End quote. We will mention also the International Zinc Syndicate, established in 1909, which divided outright output exactly among five groups of factories, German, Belgian, French, Spanish, and British. There's also the International Dynamite Trust, 
of which Leafman says that it is, quote, quite a modern close alliance between all the manufacturers of explosives who, with the English and French dynamite manufacturers who have organized in a similar manner, have divided the whole world among themselves, so to speak, end quote. Altogether, Leafman, in 1897, counted about 40 international cartels in which Germany had a share, while in 1910, there were about 100. Certain bourgeois writers, with whom K. Kautsky, who has completely abandoned the Marxian position he held, for example, in 1909, has now associated himself, expressed the opinion that international cartels are the most striking expressions of the internationalization of capital, and that they themselves, they, they therefore, give hope of peace among nations under capitalism. Theoretically, this opinion is absurd. Well, in practice, it is a sophism and a dishonest defense of the worst opportunism. International cartels show to what point capitalist monopolies have developed, and they reveal the object of the struggle between the various capitalist groups. This last circumstance is the most important. It alone shows us the historic economic significance of events. For the forms of the struggle may and do vary in accordance with varying relative particularly in transitory causes, but the essence of the struggle, its class contact, cannot change while classes exist. It is easy to understand, for example, that it is in the interests of, German, of the German bourgeoisie, whose theoretical arguments have now been adopted by Kautsky, we will deal with this later, to obscure the content of the contemporary economic struggle, the division of the world, and to emphasize one or another form of the struggle. Kautsky makes the same mistake. Of course, we have not in mind we have in mind not only the German bourgeoisie, but the bourgeoisie all over the world. The capitalists d uh, divide the world, not out of malice, but because the degree of concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to get profits. And they divide it in proportion to capital, in proportion to strength, because there cannot be any other system of division under the system of commodity production and capitalism. But strength varies with the degree of economic and political development. In order to understand what takes place, it is necessary to know what questions are settled by this change of forces. The question as to whether these changes are purely economic or non-economic, e.g. military, is a secondary one, which does not in the least affect the fundamental view on the latest epoch of capitalism. To substitute for the question of the content for this uh, of the struggle and agreements between capitalist combines, the question of the form of these struggles and agreements, today tomorrow, today peaceful, tomorrow warlike, the next day peaceful once again, is to descend into sophistry. The epoch of modern capitalism shows us that certain relations are established between capitalist alliances based on the economic partition of the world. While parallel to this fact, and in connection with it, certain relations are established between political alliances, between states, and on the basis of territorial division of the world, of the struggle for colonies, of the struggle for economic territory. End of chapter five. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we'll be reading chapter six, The Division of the World Among the Great Powers. Um, that one looks long enough that that one's just going to be its own thing, so, yeah. Probably for the rest of this book, we're back onto, uh, one chapter per episode, just because it's easier to do it that way. 
Um, so yeah, that's what we'll be doing next time. Please don't forget to like and share this with anyone you think needs to read this work. Um, it might not, this episode might not be super convenient because it's two chapters in one, but you know, we're getting through this book. It's the price that had to be paid, so you're just gonna have to deal with it. And I don't really care that much. Um, so yeah, that's all I really have to say right now. Um, yeah, well, I'll see you all next time for chapter six. Solidarity forever and keep on reading.